to sing a new note, I have to say that the title of the sermon I borrowed, um, Sophia Betancourt, who is a Unitarian Universalist theologian and ethicist, uh, said that phrase in the middle of something else. I don't even remember the rest of the sentence, but I wrote it down because I thought, I immediately said, oh, that's what we need. Right now, we need to sing a new note. And um, right around that part of what she was talking about, she read a poem written by Elizabeth Alexander. It's actually part of a longer cycle of poems entitled Amistad. It's about the, that famous slave ship. And there's a, a section in that, within Amistad entitled Absence. And um, it was interesting that we sang Blue Boat Home, which is everybody's favorite, remote, many, many people's favorite hymn, um, because this is another, it's another ship. And um, it's not a happy ship. Um, but something happens there on that ship. And it's, it's evoking the birth of blues music, which is a distinctively, form, a distinctively American form of music, blues and jazz are um, something new that happened here in our land. But before that, we have absence. In the absence of women on board, when the ship reached the point where no landmass was visible in any direction and the funk had begun to accrue, human funk, spirit funk, soul funk, who commenced the moaning who first hummed that deep sound from empty bowels, roiling stomachs from back of the frantically thumping heart? In the absence of women, of mothers, who found the note that would soon be called blue? The first blue note from one bowel, one throat, joined by dark others in gnarled harmony. Before the head rag, the cast iron skillet, new blue awaited on the other shore, invisible, as yet unhummed. Who knew what note to hit or how? In the middle of the ocean, in the absence of women, there is no deeper deep, no bluer blue. So to me, that feels both heavy and um, pregnant somehow with possibility, that moment on a slave ship where a new kind of sound in brand new circumstances was born. And I know since the beginning of the pandemic, I at least, and I've heard other voices also, saying something new will come of this. This is teaching us things we couldn't have learned any other way. This is, um, what, what is it? And um, at, the be, uh, you know, at the beginning, I think we thought it was gonna be over a lot sooner. <laughs> we thought we could, we could learn our new thing and move it in, on, back on into normal life. It turns out not to have gone that way. And I'm also very aware that there have been a great many things that we've been worried about and fearful of and suffering under well before the pandemic was ever in sight. Um, and you don't need me to list it. I made a long list just to you know, corral my thoughts. But you know what's on that list. You know where we were 
in 2016. You know where we were in 2019, in 2017, and in 2020. In 2021, you were here, we were here. And we are still worrying. We are still afraid. And, and now we are often exhausted and lonely. We are feeling the loss of things. We are feeling um, overwhelmed and still the fear, lots of fear. And grief. And grief. And grief is one of those things I think our culture has often been very afraid of. And in a sense, my talk today is really an argument that perhaps if we paid more attention to grief and learned how to feel it and move through it, we would find resources we don't know we have. We would feel our way through it, really. Um, and the tricky thing is we have to feel our way through it. A lot of us, and I'm so up there, we're really good at thinking our way through things. We try to make sense, we think critically, um, we put together neatly ordered arguments about things. Um, we study them, we love the data, and, and I love all of those things. And I have come to a point in my life where I'm realizing I haven't processed some feelings. I haven't, I'm not as free to feel my feelings as I would like to be. And I think as a culture, we live very much there. And so I'm, I'm trying now, I came across a quotation from Pima Chodron, the American Buddhist teacher. Uh, recently that struck me um, as sort of being a summary of what it is I'm trying to do. And it's actually, I think it feels like a safe starting place because it doesn't actually mention feelings at all. So um, she wrote this, as people who want to live a good, full, unrestricted, adventurous, real kind of life. And I'm like, yes, sign me up. I want that, a good, full, unrestricted, adventurous, real kind of life. There is concrete instruction we can follow. And this is it, see what is. And this is, this is really a summary of what Buddhism and Buddhist practice is about. It's about trying to see what is in the world and also inside myself, right? Um, so this is kind of, that's kind of interesting. You kind of go, okay, yeah, I can see what is. <laughs> and you know, the thinking part of my brain can see all that and can study it and put it on spreadsheets and graphs and charts and collect data sets and what have you. And still there's more. There, there is within the human experience the need to, we have, we have, we have feelings and we don't decide to have them. And we don't decide when they're done being felt either. <laughs> we just have them. And we're told um, lots of contradictory things growing up, at least I was anyway. Um, you know, feelings are okay. It's all right to feel your feelings. You and I, we're, you and me are free to be and right, have our feelings and all this. And you need to get over it because they make me uncomfortable. And so let's, let's go on to the, you know, didn't we already talk about this? <laughs> Aren't we done? Aren't we done? Can't we go on? And so sometimes we have to figure out on our own sort of 
where do those feelings live? How can we feel them? How can we access them? When we're often being asked, could you just put those to the side for a minute and let's do the real, real life? Um, and there, um, for a lot of us, I think, in our culture, um, the, the way we get to feeling our feelings is to get to a place where we are, we are overwhelmed. We get totally stressed out. We um, run into health problems, which are often stress-linked. Um, we are not mindful walking down the street, and we trip and break something, you know. Um, or we're just living with a pandemic, and that brought so many adjustments so quickly that didn't end for over two years. Every week was something new to adjust to. You're just tired. We're just tired. We need to go to sleep, and we don't have time to sleep. Um, and at some point, often people just go, ah. And if they're lucky, they have communities of people around them who will hold them, who will make space. Or they have personal resources, so they can say, OK, this is what's happening, and I see, I, I've read, I see that this happens. If I just hold on, it will be over. It will, it will, right? And sometimes we bump into resources. Um, so for instance, I just two weeks ago, less than that, week and a half, it was, it was the first week of February, participated in the UU Ministers Association Institute, which is a, it's a gathering they do, I haven't gotten clear yet on t every two or every three years, the pandemic got the cycle off and I'm a newish minister, so I haven't ever been before. Um, I was planning, I thought, to go to San Diego. <laughs> you know, in February, that'd be really nice to go to San Diego. Um, and then I decided I didn't feel safe to travel. So I was at home on Zoom yet again for seven hours a day at, the, at a conference. But the workshop track I signed up for was called Grief and Gratitude. Have you made art about it yet? And I didn't really care about the grief and gratitude part so much. I just wanted to play with paint and stuff because this is something I don't do. I'm not a visual artist at all. Um, Sorry, Frank. <laughs> but, but I had so much fun. But we were talking about grief. We started with grief. And this was a, we were using this um, learning and meditation kind of process that was based on, uh, it's a Jew, it's, a, it's been developed by a few Jewish people. And it's, it's now spreading around the country. It's called the Jewish studio process. But you start with text, you know, with a partner or in a small group talking about a text. And then you make art. You just do whatever with whatever you have, and you make art. And then you, you look at your art. You witness what is there in front of you, and you journal about that. What do you notice? And you start seeing that, oh, yeah, the word flow was in that text we looked at. And I've got all these flowing brush strokes. And what is flowing in me? And where is the grief? And you know, I discovered interesting things like I'm, I'm really kind of, excuse me, pissed off at a lot of my ancestors. <laughs> that came up for me. And joy came up for me. In the very last piece we did, I don't, I don't do yellow. 
I don't, it looks terrible on me, which is probably the reason I don't, I don't, I just don't do yellow. It's not a color I like if I've never ever said to somebody yellow is my favorite color. And so I had this page full of purple and green, which then somehow wanted orange, which is my other not favorite color. So I put the orange there and it was kind of fun. It was kind of playful. And then it wanted a spot of yellow. And so I did yellow and then it didn't, it didn't just want the whole spot. The yellow felt so joyful. It wanted to, it filled up all the, the rest of the empty spaces. And then it was time, time was up. Um, but but there, I started with these deep sort of moody colors, blue and purple and green. And it, I ended with yellow kind of being the background for all of that, which is really, really interesting. There, there, if, if I actually, what, what I took from that is if I actually find a way to feel my feelings, for example, playing with art, even though I don't know how to use acrylic paints and I don't know which paintbrush to use and I don't know how much water or where I can mix the paint with the water. You know, I'm making it all up because we, we weren't, really weren't given instructions. Um, and it's okay. And I'm like thinking about the brush and what it can do and I'm thinking about the colors and what happens when they overlap and, um, and all of it's just play. It's just fun. And I learned new things about myself, about the feelings I carry around, about my relationship to my ancestors, but also I was using my daughter's acrylic paints, you know, so, so she was in the room with me even though she wasn't. And, and her brushes too, actually, and her oil pastels. And, you know, I had, it was all her art material. Um, and, and there was, when I gave the grief all the space it needed in my attention, but also on the paper, then suddenly there was much more room for the yellow than I ever thought there could be or would be. And it just, it made me happy. I almost brought that thing to show you, and, but it's, it, it makes me happy. <laughs> you would look at it and go, why is she showing us this? Um, or maybe you wouldn't. Frank would be very kind, I know. Um, but but it's, it doesn't matter, because that was just my process. And um, I think some of what we are called to do in this moment, where we are, as um, Adrienne Marie Brown says, I am, we are, and, and she was writing this back just in December, at the end of what was for her a very hard year. We are suspended between pandemic and climate crisis and sharing the planet with so many death cultists. It hurts. It is okay to be overwhelmed during an overwhelming time. And so I'm trying to find space for us to recognize that overwhelm, that grief, and to be okay with it, to know that the grief is okay, but also that we are big enough to hold that and that we can help each other. Um, that um, I have, um, yeah, so many things I wanted to say. Let's see what I can get to here. There is, um, I am very, I was very aware as I put this together, and especially when I you know, chose to use that passage from Amistad, that um, 
one of the things we struggle with, especially as Unitarian Universalists, is our relationship with history now, especially white people. We have this, odd, white people in America, we have this odd and very, um, it's transforming right now, it's changing, uh, it's developing. We have relationship with history and with our history and with the history um, of us together with other peoples on this continent. And the way the narrative was taught to most of us in school is not, uh, it's, we, we are coming to be aware of so many more stories that were left out that it's getting to be clear that the way we, the history we were taught was slanted. Not that it was untrue, it's just that it was incomplete. And um, that's really hard, it's really hard for us. And I got in the mail, all the, this was very, this sermon just kind of fell together. I was thinking about it for weeks, but I got this in a box. My mother sends her favorite books of every year around Christmas time to my sisters and I. She gives us, buys us each a copy and sends them to us. And this year I got the, the pocket Thich Nhat Hanh. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher who recently passed away. Um, but there's a, there's a, I haven't read the whole thing, but I was flipping and I saw healing the past. And I love this. Our presence here means the presence of all our ancestors. They are still alive in us. Every time we smile, all the generations of our ancestors, our children and the generations to come, all of whom are within us, smile too. We practice not just for ourselves, but for everyone, and the stream of life continues. And I, I love this. Our ancestors are with us and our children and our descendants too. And, and biologically, that's true. I, I realize we, we, you know, we all come from mothers and we are connected to our great, our maternal great-grandmothers because the ova from which we came were in our mother's tiny body as it grew in her mother's womb, right? So the ancestors actually are sitting right here with us. And some of us are parents of children who may have children or have had children. And again, our grandchildren's bodies in egg form were there in our children's tiny bodies as they grew inside maybe our bodies, maybe other people's bodies. But they, those, we, are, we are connected physically even, even if we've adopted our loved ones, our bodies have been together, have lived together, have influenced each other, have in the hormones and the chemicals and the moods and the, the food we've shared, they've all been a part of who we are and of whom they are and who they will become and who will descend from them. So we are connected. And this is not just Thich Nhat Hanh saying something woo-woo and Buddhist about we're all connected. We really, we really truly are connected. So he goes on. If you have made mistakes and caused your beloved to suffer, and if he or she is no longer alive, don't be frustrated. You can still heal the wound within you. The person whom you think has passed away is still alive in you. You can make him or her smile. 
Suppose while your grandma was alive, you said something out of forgetfulness that made her unhappy and you still regret it. Sit down, breathe in and out mindfully, visualize your grandma sitting with you and say, Grandma, I am sorry. I will never again say anything like that to you or anyone else I love. If you are sincere, focused, and utterly mindful, you will see her smiling in you and the wound will be healed. Now, he doesn't say anything about this, but I also imagined right this moment that there might be apologies I want to offer to my great-grandchildren. You know, and maybe that's part of the work we need to be doing right now. I'm thinking especially in, well, no, in regards to all of the problems, <laughs> everything that we worry about. And um, I'm gonna skip a little and go on. Although we think the past is gone and the future is not yet here, if we look deeply, we see that reality is more than that. The past exists in the guise of the present because the present is made from the past. In this teaching, if we establish ourselves firmly in the present and touch the present moment deeply, we also touch the past and have the power to repair it. That is a wonderful teaching and practice. We don't have to bear our wounds forever. We are all unmindful at times. We have made mistakes in the past. It does not mean that we have to always carry that guilt without transforming it. Touch the present deeply and you touch the past. Take care of the present and you can repair the past. Now, it's, I think, it's very, I think it's tricky. I suspect it's tricky for all of us. I know it's tricky for me to figure out how to be connected to the present moment. Does that mean staying up to date with everything that's happening and catching all the news headlines more or less as they come at me? I kind of don't think so. And yet I feel irresponsible when I don't at least kind of know what's going on. That, that is part of, of what is. Um, but I also, I read Adrian Marie Brown's, she had a blog post, which is what I read part of before. Um, and, and she had just experienced a lot of deaths in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of deaths of people who were important to her and was feeling overwhelmed by grief and was assured by friends that yes, it makes sense to be overwhelmed right now. And, and she's, she's writing this post to tell all of us, it makes sense to be overwhelmed right now. But one of the things she did to cope with that was to turn off all notifications of anything that wasn't coming to her from her friends and close circle and your family, you know, those people, and to only engage with anything else when she decided she had bandwidth for it, right? Um, so that, maybe that, that could be a help sometimes. Um, I am, it's hard. And I guess, I, I guess what I wanna do is give you permission and ask you to give me permission to engage things when I can, when I am ready. Um, I want you to be thoughtful, because part of um, what the world does with us, by the world I mean our culture, society, um, the powers, the powers that own a lot of the resources, what they really do is try to just distract us all the time. So they'll give us information, but they give it in little chunks, and it's always a, oh look, oh well you think that's bad, look over here. You think, and, Meanwhile, we are looking in 20 different ways and not really seeing anything of what is. So 
that needs to be balanced with the need to be willing to see what is. And so some of the, the discipline might be to pay attention to those who are closest to us. So in this room, what are the needs? In my family, what are the needs? In my neighborhood, in the, the places where you are at any given point. What are the concerns? What are the feelings? What are the needs? And can you be present? Can you touch those deeply instead of skimming very lightly via Facebook through lots and lots and lots of stuff, much of which might be inspiring or might be just totally distracting, um, or more commonly, I think, a, a mixture of both. So anyway, I find all of this a little bit overwhelming and depressing, and I don't want to leave you there. So Adrienne Marie Brown again. She says, remember you are water. Of course you leave salt trails, right? Of course you are crying. Flow. P.S. If there happens to be a multitude of griefs upon you, individual and collective, or fast and slow, or small and large, and I think that's true for all of us right now, especially in these last, I want to say these two years, but it's been five, it's, you know, or more, or 500, you know. It's, it's been all of these different kinds of multi multitude of griefs. So if that's the case, if there happens to be a multiple, multitude of griefs, add equal parts of these considerations. That the broken heart can cover more territory. That perhaps love can only be as large as grief demands. That grief is the growing up of the heart that bursts boundaries like an old skin or a finished life. That grief is gratitude that your grief is a worthwhile use of your time. Sometimes um, we feel pressured to make good use of our time. So for me, it was helpful to be told my grief is worthwhile. But what I really love is grief is gratitude. And as soon as I heard that, as soon as that reading was presented to me, it was in that art workshop I took, um, I went, oh, of course. Because if you grieve for something, you can grieve for something that was good that you've lost. You can also grieve for something that you didn't have and be grateful that you know that you should have that, that that is a good thing, that you are a being capable of having what you haven't yet experienced. So, I, I've never heard anybody else say grief is gratitude, but it struck me as very true. And I think um, gratitude is a key practice that might lead us um, through the feelings of grief and overwhelm into a fuller sense of life and possibilities. And so I encourage you to lean into what, whatever you need to do, and it's going to be different for each of us, to feel those feelings, to be aware of them, um, to find space to explore them, 
or to be supported or to have safety and privacy that you need to explore them. Whatever it is you need. It might be therapy. It might be somebody else's company. It might be a room of your own and some art supplies. Um, it might be a, a stack of good books. Um, it's different for everybody. I think we also need connection, and I think you know that or you wouldn't be in this room this morning. Um, and I think we also need to learn to ask each other for help, which of course you've heard that before. Um, and we still are not always very good about that. Our culture, again, the sort of, the American history story that I was taught growing up was all about independence and standing for ideals and fighting for freedom and freedom involved nobody telling me what to do. Um, so they, they suggest a sort of individual who can manage all on their own and that to not be able to manage all on your own makes you somehow a little bit less. So for some of us, asking for help is hard. I have found it to be really difficult. <laughs> um, but also when I can manage to do it, it leads me surprising places. And um, I've never been treated cruelly when I, well, maybe once or twice, but that person was having a bad, bad day. You know, never in big ways. I've never, well, and some of it's the art of asking for help from the right places, too. You ask um, places where you trust. So, um, the other big thing, I think, in terms of feeling our feelings and is to, and, and also Pima Chodron, seeing what is, we tend, again, remember we're very intellectual in our heads kind of group of people, we Unitarian Universalists, we Americans in many ways. Um, I think many of us need to connect more strongly with our bodies. Zoom was not that great for that, <laughs> that, that yeah, you know, year of seeing nobody except in the black box of our screen, we sort of forgot the rest of our bodies were there. Mm -hmm. I was kind of giddy when I had to go to physical therapy because I was in a room of people with bodies doing things and healing by touching people's bodies and stuff. It was, oh, I get to go see people. Um, but anyway, we, we, we need to pay attention and learn to live in our bodies and feel what that is. It's part of the reason I liked that poem about the, the bodies and the slave ships, because it's so just, oh, human beings are bodies. And when they're forced to be bodies, sometimes these new other wonderful things, the blue note is carried from Africa to this shore and becomes something new. I love blues, so I think that's a, you know, that was a gift to our continent. Um, and the earth. Our bodies also are what connects us to the earth. We are made up of the same stuff. The earth, the stars are made up of. So all of that. Thich Nhat Hanh, do I have time? I'm talking long today. I'm gonna have a little bit more Thich Nhat Hanh and then one more comment from Adrienne Marie Brown and then I'll be done. Also just flipping through this book yesterday, I found Touching the Earth because I do think we need, we need to learn to, as Rumi says, um, kneel and kiss the ground. He says there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground, right? We love Rumi. We know he's wise. So one of, Thich Nhat Hanh describes in this practice of touching the earth, one of those, one a possible way that I think is within reach for many of us anyway. 
In the Buddhist tradition I am part of, we do a practice called touching the earth every day. It helps us in many ways. You too could be helped by doing this practice. When you feel restless or lack confidence in yourself or when you feel angry or unhappy, you can kneel down and touch the ground deeply with your hand. Touch the earth as if it were your favorite thing or your best friend. The earth has been there for a long time. She is mother to all of us. She knows everything. The Buddha asked the earth to be his witness by touching her with his hand when he had some doubt and fear before his awakening. The earth appeared to him as a beautiful mother. In her arms, she carried flowers and fruit, birds and butterflies, and many different animals, and offered them to the Buddha. The Buddha's doubts and fears instantly disappeared. Whenever you feel unhappy, come to the earth and ask for her help. Touch her deeply, the way the Buddha did. Suddenly, you too will see the earth with all her flowers and fruit, trees and birds, animals, and all the living beings that she has produced. All these things she offers to you. You have more opportunities to be happy than you ever thought. The earth shows her love to you and her patience. The earth is very patient. She sees you suffer, she helps you, and she protects you. When we die, she takes us back into her arms. With the earth, you are very safe. She is always there in all her wonderful expressions, like trees, flowers, butterflies, and sunshine. Whenever you are tired or unhappy, touching the earth is a very good practice to heal you and restore your joy. So I recommend touching the earth, or if that doesn't appeal to you, find out what does. What does restore you to joy? How can you take your grief and ground it, as it were? Finally, Adrienne Marie Brown, again in this blog post about her very difficult, overwhelming year, says at the very end of this post, I suspect the future will be shaped by all that we are feeling in the present. I believe that asking each other for help is self-love, and on answering honestly is self-love, and giving what we can is community love, and love is what will reshape the pattern of humanity. Even through the tears, I know that. So friends, we have a lot on our plates. We have a lot in this moment. We have a lot of history to sort through. We have a lot of relationships to heal and mend. We have community to build. And it's not the grief that will save us. It's not the being happy that will save us. It's not even the gratitude that will save us. It is the love. It is the love that will reshape the pattern of humanity. And so I invite you to find your new night, new note, or perhaps be attentive to the new note that is arising somewhere out of the mud that we are in. I'm gonna mix Buddhist mo metaphors in here. There's gonna be a new note. There will be a lotus. There will be something. There has always been, alongside all of the misery and the suffering, there has always also been community and love and growth and life flowing through everything. That will continue until it doesn't anymore. Um, and while it's here, let's do what we can to see it for what it is.
that life and to build that love and use that to reshape humanity. Blessed be, may it be so. May we help to make it so. And amen. <laughs>